Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo, and today's guest is Kaisa Ekis Ekman, a Swedish journalist, writer, and activist. She is the author of several works about the financial crisis, women's rights, and critiques of capitalism. She writes for the culture section of the Swedish daily Dagens Nihete and is a co-op columnist at the left-wing daily ETC. She also writes for The Guardian, Truthdig, and Feminist Current. Her book, Being and Being Bought, compares the sex industry and the surrogacy industry and how they both commodify women's bodies. It criticizes the notion of sex work as being an unholy alliance between the neoliberal right and the postmodern left, used to legitimize the sex industry. She also argues that the trade unions for sex workers in many cases are funded by pimps, states, and academics, and have very little to do with the labor struggle. The book has been translated into French, English, Spanish, and German. I welcome Ekis Ekman to Savage Minds. I'm so happy you came on the show. Your work is very well known, especially to feminists, but far flung of that. And it's quite interesting because we're living in a very crazy time when, well, countries are going in and out of lockdown. Soon we won't be able to keep track if it's the third or the 30th. And I was just on Twitter noticing someone reprimanding me for an article I ran on Georgia Agemban. And it's quite interesting to see that while many countries had Pornhub offering men free porn during lockdown because God forbid they should help their wife do homeschooling, cleaning and cooking. Mm. They were also of the left, very uninterested in how the working class, the poor, even people who were formerly middle class, but now dirt poor because they, they scrambled through their savings. Very little was spoken about the material reality. And your work as a journalist has touched upon direct realities from sex work to surrogacy and the surrogacy industry and the ways in which the left, which you call the postmodern left, and I've, I call it the neoliberal left in the sense of, I don't think that these quote unquote leftists have anything to do with the left. I think the left has been hijacked many, many years ago by a kind of identitarianism that speaks to the way that we can plump ourselves up now on social media in previous eras within our social groups, our university departments to make us look like we are really informed because don't you know, every woman, their dream is to be independently wealthy, to buy a home and to do it by having sex with men. And this is the strange thing that I saw as an academic within various universities, not just one or two, where there's a narrative that has been cemented, especially since the late 80s, early 90s, that pits women and their freedoms against and through capitalism. And I'm wondering if you might start off talking a bit about how you write for some very left-leaning publications. At the same time, you write for publications that spin wokery all over the place and that spin us females, vagina havers, if you will, as <laughs> inconsequential to our choices. We are not allowed to say, I don't want a man in my area of a spa or on my tennis team. No, thank you. It's not enough. What has to be stated is that I have been raped in order to state that. There has to be some kind of now bizarre violence that has taken place in order for me to have the empowerment to say, I don't want a penis near me while I'm changing my clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, I am a Marxist. I am a socialist and that's where I come from. So for 20 or 25 or so years, I have been active both theoretically and um, practically in the movement and the feminist movement and the anti-fascist movement in the socialist movement. So the way I see it is, you know, both socialism and feminism are based on materialism. And what does that mean? Well, you know, that means that first you have to eat before you can think. It means that 
thoughts don't arise from anywhere. You know, they don't arise from a vacuum. They are reflections of um, the material life that we lead. You know, uh, the state of production or reproduction, for example, will shape the way that we think. If you look at a country that's still mainly agricultural, you know, and feudal, people will have certain thoughts. Whereas if you look at a capitalist neoliberal society, late capitalism, people will have other thoughts. So that's where I'm coming from when I say that woman, for example, is a material reality. You know, woman is not just an idea. Woman is not a set of stereotypes. Woman is not something you can just identify with. I mean, obviously, there is something such as gender as well, you know, and gender is a word that we in the women's movement have been using for quite some time, meaning that gender is everything that's stereotypes about sex. Um, but you also can't just separate sex and gender because gender is a way to organize and hierarchically organize sex. So for that to be replaced with some, you know, uh, arbitrary notion of gender and for that gender to take the place of sex in in legislation you know i think basically it's patriarchy coming back but you know you mentioned something very interesting you know left and you know neoliberal left and everything you know i think is that since 1968 you know um when the new left, so to speak, was very successful in implementing ideas such as, you know, it's right to make revolution, you know, it's right to protest. Um, those that are oppressed uh, are right, the oppressors are wrong, you know, things like that. I mean, previously, those that were in power were automatically right, you know, and if you were oppressed, you were oppressed because either you were biologically inferior, according to the dominant discourse, or it was just your own fault. So, you know, 1968 kind of changed all that. And since then, power has adopted the language of the oppressed. So what we're seeing now with the elimination of words like woman, for example, you know, it's basically patriarchy just kind of changing clothes and reformulating itself according to and using um, feminist language to do so, which fools a lot of feminists because it sounds feminist, but it isn't, you know, it's just the opposite. This is the problem is that we have this disillusion of the, the old world binaries or dichotomies of left and right, we have, as you just said, the modality of gender being used almost to supplant quite conveniently for politicians, policymakers, heads of industry, any discussion about real life struggles, real material struggles, because why work on salary hikes for your least paid workers when you can put pronoun badges, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just remember an example from recently, you know, this, this online um, clothing company called Zalando, based in Germany. Yeah. We're having a problem with them here because uh, basically the workers in their warehouse are, it's not a problem of salaries, really. It's a problem of uh, not being able to sit down during an eight or nine hour working day and also not being able to bring their mobile phones into like at work. So basically um, it's happened that the wives of some of the male workers have given birth and the men haven't been reached by the phone calls. So they don't know that their wife has given birth because they're not allowed to even, you know, see text messages at work. And, you know, basically the conditions are not acceptable. And in the meantime, Zalando has this like online internet campaign about celebrate diversity we love queer people, you know, and it's, it's such an easy way out because it doesn't cost them anything, you know, it's just like, oh yeah, like celebrate tolerance. But as soon as you're talking about like, you know, how do you make your profits, like real material changes, you know, that comes at a cost, right? And I think it's the same thing with women's rights. Like if you are to implement programs, you know, against violence against women, for example, and things like that, or change the, the pay gap, you know, these are things that like, you won't do it just in a second. Like it takes a lot of money, a lot of investment, a lot of motivation. So we've had like a long struggle here in Sweden to implement something that we called uh, integration of equality politics, which means that anything uh, that the government or that local communes or that any official body says or does or undertakes has to be reviewed according to standards of equality. Meaning like, for example, if you um, 
create like a, a, a football court. You have to think about who's going to use it. You know, is it just the boys? Because then you have to create something else for the girls as well. You know, things like that. And now, you know, it's so easy because with a new policy of like, who knows what a woman is and, you know, we don't use words such as women and men anymore. Basically that's like to a larger extent being replaced by just norm critique, like criticizing norms and having like one course in like, how to think beyond the binary kind of thing. And that doesn't cost anything. You don't have to build anything else. You don't have to think about actual boys, actual girls uh, being discriminated against, you know? So in that way, yeah, it fits, it fits together with the new times, but I think there is a lot more behind that. What else do you think is behind that? Well, you know, when I wrote my book, because my last book, which so far is only in Swedish, it's coming out in Spanish in October, and I'm still hoping to get a publisher in the US as well as the UK, uh, so it can be published in English, but it's called On the Existence of Sex, Thoughts on the New Definition of Woman. And uh, there, um, what I do in my last chapter is I look at, you know, how the word woman has been used since basically back to the Bible, back to, you know, old Greek, ancient Greek texts and things like that. And it's, it's very interesting to note that the word woman uh, for thousands of years was used mainly by men to denote something they didn't really um, have in high esteem, so to say, um, because woman is defined as something that's inferior to men, something that's just deviant, something that's no good. Does she have a soul? You know, does she not have a soul? Even, you know, the, the father of anarchism, uh, Proudhon, said that woman is, uh, is, is uh, I think it was like three-sixths of a man or something. That's her worth. So that's how the word woman appears throughout history up until 18th century, when all of a sudden women start taking back the word and all of a sudden we have women themselves um, using that word and defining woman as something else, as an oppressed being, as somebody who has the right to the same things that men have and defining herself. And woman went from being an inferior uh, creature to becoming uh, a politically oppressed subject with the right to revolt. You know, that's when we get to the year 2000, that's what woman has become. So nowadays, uh, I think it's very clear that with the attempt to erase the word woman and to say that, you know, that doesn't exist or it's problematic or, you know, replacing it with something else like uh, menstruator or even cis woman, we are changing again the definition of the word woman. Because with the word cis woman, which means exactly the same group as the word woman used to mean, meaning, you know, somebody who's born and is biologically a female. This woman means something different. It doesn't mean an oppressed character with right to revolt. Cis woman means a privileged person who should shut up, basically. Yes, and who allies naturally with floral print dresses and we obsess over our nails. It is about a recodification of the very symptom of women that even Freud speaks of. I mean, these are the most misogynist ideas about women that are encapsulated in that tiny yeah. prefix. And, totally. and I really hate it when you go on social media and they're like, well, it comes from chemistry. Excuse me, I studied chemistry. Uh, cis and chemistry has something else going on there, it has nothing to do with this. What they like to do this lobby is to cut and paste topics or ideas and then pretend that we're the idiots. Yeah, but if you think about like, okay, just the phrase like women of the world unite, you know, that has power. That has like, hey, listen to us. But if you say cis women of the world unite, you know, it doesn't have the same power. What it means is like billionaire women of the world unite. It's something like the most privileged, right? You know, that's what it means. But we're talking about the same group, but that group is now being redefined as privileged, right? So you have, mm -hmm. you know, that discursive power of being an oppressed subject has been taken away from us, you know? And I think that's the real meaning of the word cis woman. You know, if it just meant that you weren't trans, you know, that's that's something else, right? You can have just a definition of that, but it, it, that's not what it means. It means privileged. And it means just like you were saying that you enjoy your gender role and that you feel content with your gender role, that you've always identified yourself as a woman. You know, which is basically redefining uh, so that 99% of women 
are content with a gender role and don't want to change it. So, you know, what's the need of feminism if everyone that's not uh, content with their gender role becomes trans and the other are cis and thus are content, then who needs feminism? I mean, nobody, right? It creates a linguistic slave class in a way, in a very sick way, because years ago when I wrote my second piece on this, because I was harassed so badly after my first piece in 2013, a month later. Yeah, you're in the club. And I mean, 13 was like peak trans as well. So, I mean, if you wrote it back then, I can imagine that they would just jump on you. Oh, I had to leave the country. I had to leave London. I had people threatening to kill and rape me. They threatened me by email, by voice message to my publisher and his children and him. So, you know, my six month old daughter had rape threats. So we left the country for a few months. I was flipped out. I was never so afraid in my life. And I've been in wartime situations. Then I decided I'm going to write about what they were trying to address. And this is the problem. They really got down on me because of my critique of cis. So I I bared down and I wrote something to the effect of that their use of cis is an attempt to naturalize women in order to normalize their pathology. And yeah. I have a problem with this idea of what children call opposite day. You know, when kids are playing a game and, and whoever wants to be contrary will just say, no, it's not, no, it's not, no, it's not. I feel like I'm dealing with this kind of mentality with adults because yeah. we are not to be naturalized. I'm sorry, not by other men or women, but this is a clear misogynist move here in order mm. for us to be, as you said earlier, we are now, <laughs> we're their oppressors. We're the men's oppressors. Is it a laugh or cry moment, right? Yeah, well, that just shows the discursive power that's imbibed in, in, in the idea of being oppressed. You know, that's back to what I said before about what the legacy of 1968. You know, nowadays you have to be oppressed somehow to talk within like progressive discourse you know the right doesn't have that problem because they their notion of authority lies on something else you know their notion of authority lies on you know heritage and you know uh merits and who you are and what your last name is and how much money you have you know what title you have that's different you know but the left has this idea that you know it's it's if you're oppressed, you know, that gives you a right to speak about your own oppression. But now since the oppression of women now has been defined away, you know, on what platform is woman going to talk about herself? Well, certainly not at all. At the same time, at the moment Rachel Dolezal hit the news, people laughed. She was not taken seriously by anyone. I don't recall not one person having Rachel Dolezal's back and saying, wait. Whoopi Goldberg actually did. She was the only one. I remember a talk show, Whoopi Goldberg was like, well, you know, if she wants to be Black and like live our suffering, you know, let her. Right, but everyone knows that you can't just, on top of co-opting a racial nomenclature, co-opt an oppression. This is the irony. But the minute a man puts a bit of lippy or high heels on, the bleeding hearts roll out the carpet for him. But why do you think that is, though? I'm trying to analyze that in my book. I'm not sure I have the right conclusion, but, like, what do you think? Like, why is there that, that difference between, like, for example, sex on one hand, which supposedly you can change the way you feel like, and race and class and age, for example, on the other hand, categories of oppression as well, which supposedly you can't change? Well, there's two things, I think, at the heart of this. I think nobody believes these men are anything but men. I think it's a narrative that fits into, unfortunately, the very negative impacts of late stage capitalism. There is also mm -hmm. no coincidence that the left has embraced these identity politics. You're correct in talking about 1968. I think it got hammered into place between Thatcherism and Reaganism and then perestroika for various other reasons uh, and, and related reasons as well. But I think what happened is that the former labor union formation class, the working class. And we know that the U.S. had a horrible legacy with labor unions and they were dismantled so much under Reaganism and they were, farmers' rights were harmed under Reagan. Bruce Springsteen did concerts to support farmers' rights. I mean, it was a really insane time in the 80s. But what happened is the material wealth flowed from the left towards the right at that point. I mean, not, you know, unilaterally necessarily, but 
the right wingers in the White House and in the Congress and Senate had an enormous amount of economic power. And so the left had a certain kind of intellectual foothold and that's where academia fits in. And when you can't change material reality, and I don't think academics really tried that hard, especially in the US, they did in other countries, but they worked at what they could change, language. And the language of, we started to see it in humanities department. When I got to university, cultural studies were starting to blossom. Feminist studies were being destroyed for gender studies because let's not talk about material reality. We can't touch that. Let's talk about what we can touch. Let's build lofty, degree programs that discuss feelings and oppression. And who goes to these universities? Who studies these? Africana studies at NYU it was a great department, but who can afford to go to a 50,000 a year university in New York City? That means paying New York City rents, etc. Very few African Americans can actually do that. And the fact that we have a mechanism within university that's been feeding this nonsense for a long time, the nonsense being identity is empowerment. That was the wrong message. Studying Africana studies is not a problem. Studying gender studies, if, if you will, and having that disagreement with feminists is not a problem. Dismantling departments to make room for ideological departments is. So that was part of it. The other part is that there are no jobs. What are students going to leave university doing? They created in the 90s, all over the five boroughs of Manhattan, studies in the humanities that were basically built on bullshit because they, they were trying to get people into MBA programs as well, mind you. But there was a lot of take out a student loan so you can talk about this five syllable word that you'll put in your master's thesis and get out with five digits of student debt. That was happening. The United States funding of graduate students shifted from what was in the 70s and 80s, often a fellowship, you would be paid, you have even a stipend, to by the mid to late 90s, most graduate students were not getting financial assistance and they had to go into debt. So that was part of it. And I think capitalism has a huge weight to bear. The other side of that is that there started to be understandings in social sciences and history and the humanities that objective reality not only needed to be challenged, but it needed to be toppled. And there's a distinction between challenging the history books that made it out as if, well, Cortez just conquered Mexico and the natives who spoke Nahuatl wanted him to conquer them. That was one of the narratives put forth. And, it, it, and so in 1992, you saw a lot of pushback against the, the discovery of America. It was the 500 year anniversary of Columbus's discovering America. So you had a lot of, he didn't discover America. And there were great books put out about that. Tsvetan uh, Todorov did a response. Many, uh, Stephen Greenblatt, many writers came out with books or essays devoted to that. Latin American studies flourished, area studies started to flourish, but there was a problem. These departments were often ideological. So instead of taking up Huntington versus Said in terms of Orientalism, we were being taught Huntington's a racist, Said is the answer. Now, that's a little bit of a problem. And I'm a huge fan of Edward Said's work. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how comes from there because in Sweden you know a situation is very different now for example we don't pay for universities at all so but I think but but you're right I mean it's very interesting like maybe a lot comes from the situation you're speaking about and is later on exported because I know like here in Sweden we get a lot of like inspiration from debates going on in the U.S. which in the same way we don't get from like debates going on and like other parts of Europe, even like what's happening in France, like the, the discussion that's going on there, like we don't hear about it, you know, so we take a lot from there. Um, but we have had a similar change from, for example, women's studies to gender studies, which in the beginning, like didn't really make much of a difference. You know, it was the same thing they were taught anyway. So basically you were taught about the history of feminism, history of women, but I think as as time times changed, um, I don't know if you'd call it postmodernism, because now what we're seeing is is like postmodernism is even old now. 
because with you know David Butler, the idea was that nothing existed, right? So you can't even say that sex exists because sex was gender all along, right? So that means that you can't even speak about something pre-gender. So even like the notion of men and women as such, everything is floating, like everything is subject to to um, discourse, basically. But I mean, now with like uh, the shift to, well, I don't know what you would call maybe trans ideology or, you know, gender identity ideology. Um, the idea is that you can be something that if you say you are a woman, you've always been a woman, you are a woman at heart. So, I mean, that's a step away from Judith Butler, right? I mean, actually, if she was faithful to her original text, she would dispute this turn. She would say, no, nothing exists. Because now we have, again, fixed identities. We are, again, told that you can be something, that you can be born a woman and a man or, like, female and male, but it has nothing to do with your body. It's just about your identity, that it's, like, an inner, you know, uh, uh, essence that just emanates from, from the human being. Nobody can find it anywhere. You know, you can't, you haven't been able to find, in my book, I go through like research, brain research and stuff. You, gender identity is nowhere to be found. What we have found is sex, right? Right. It's a beautiful fact, but gender identity is nowhere to be found, but yet we are told that it exists and that it's innate, that you're born with it. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. What I found out when I was in academia in New York is that I was getting offers to lecture in Bergen in Norway quite a bit. There was a, uh-huh. there is a gender studies department there. And that individual who invited me had very close links with certain universities in New York City. And what I notice is that all it takes is for one person to have studied a topic, written articles or a book on a topic, bring it back to, or bring it to another country. And there's a certain cachet in their having brought this back to that country. Instead of spoils of war, we have yeah, now spoils of theory. And I saw this. I had a call. Like I was the first person to introduce this. Oh, okay. Yeah. And yeah. you can write the like preface to the book when it's translated and things well, like that. Well, absolutely. And we, we've seen this over the years because uh, Sandy Stone, I know Sandy Stone. I met Sandy Stone when I was visiting friends in Austin. And Sandy Stone wrote that response to Janice Raymond. And the issue is that Sandy Stone was able to build a fruitful career on remapping the body, on the hand, etc. But all of this was very fictional. Somehow the shark was jumped because you're correct in saying Judith Butler never said any of this. And this is an argument I've been making for a long time when the feminists say, but Judith Butler did this. No, 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 no. First, let's be clear. She was a terrible writer, her first book. It was virtually incomprehensible for many of my graduate students. I've written about it at length, but we can't pretend that a badly written book that clearly talks about performativity and queer studies in the early 90s was definitely about the gay community and that word was being used. I guess it was sort of like sugar saccharine. People wanted to propound a new ideology that was gay-friendly, but while creating a new word. But this also brought about problems because the whole idea of performativity came into being, then performance studies departments were created all over the country. And the idea that performativity of masculinity or femininity had nothing to do with the body is still okay because I think a lot of feminists would agree that men and women can be feminine and masculine that does not affect their somatic being. What happened were in, was in later years where there were theorists that came on the scene that tried to say that sex was not real. Even readings of Thomas Lecure's Making Sex, they would say, well, he says sex isn't real. No, read the book. I've no, read the book. He's not saying that. No. Yes, I know. And, and people will assume this. And I said, no, he goes through the history of sex from the Galen one sex model and so forth. He's talking mm-hmm. about how sex was structured in medical language. He is not saying this. I wrote a piece for Forbes about this a few years ago because it, I find it very frustrating when people will then go and jump to Simone de Beauvoir and say, well, she said one becomes a woman. 
I'm like, seriously? Oh, come on, man. Uh, like, have they read anything of that book except that one phrase? I don't think so. You know, that really bothers me that they take a whole book and reduce it to that same phrase. Like, I don't know how many times I've heard that phrase being repeated and repeated from that book. Like, it's the only thing people read. She also says, and I quote her in my book, like, after she said that, she says, you know, you're not born a woman, you become a woman, you know, and, and then she goes on to explain that woman is what they call somebody with a female body, you know, um, and what she's subjected to in life. So she's never said that there is no such thing as a female body. Well, obviously not. I mean, throughout all of human history, it is just not a coincidence that the, the sex that has children tends to be the same. Or is it just a massive coincidence? Because I'd like those odds and bet on that horse if you catch my drift. I mean, this is insane. The way in which we are now being told that anyone can be anything. And this is the second part. Why did we get to this nightmare? I think a lot of it had to do with outpouring of empowerment narratives that came at the time of Thatcher and Reagan. Remember, Thatcher got into office with the promise of my father and I rose to the occasion and I became the self-made person. Reagan, in a different way, propounded that ideology. And there's a problem when you have a pop psychology saying, and this is what pop psychology did in the late 70s and early 80s, you're not a victim, you're in charge of your destiny, turn that ship around. Mm -hmm. And of course, no one wanted to hear about women being pimped and prostituted, children being trafficked, organ harvesting, which is happening at incredible rates today of adults, but children, especially. No one wants to hear about that. So when I started social media 10 years ago, I was very late to it. But people would say, well, I don't want to read about that. That's so sad. That's political. I don't like political. And I would tell people, everything you do is political. The type of bottled water you buy, the fact that you buy bottled water is political. So turning mm -hmm. your back on a sad story about child trafficking makes you all the more political. Because I think pretending not to be political is actually a political choice. Well, I think we're going to see the same development in the trans issue as we've seen in, in the issue of prostitution. You know, I wrote my book on prostitution and surrogacy back in 2010. It was translated to English, I think, 2014. Um, and back then when I wrote it, you know, I started writing it in 2006. And back then, you know, the survivors movement of women in prostitution hadn't started yet. So when I was going around on conferences, you know, and you were hearing everywhere, well, listen to the sex workers, listen to the sex workers, you know, the organizations that represented sex workers turned out to be mainly academics or social workers or just neoliberals that for some reason had gotten into the whole thing, libertarians and, and so on who were in those organizations, but there were a few people with experience of prostitution who were speaking about how great it was to be a prostitute and things like that. So, you know, when I was speaking out on how bad prostitution was and the damages that it did, I was told, well, you have to listen to sex workers. Well, you know what? Then came the movement of survivors. All of a sudden you had, you know, Rachel Morin in Ireland, you had Space International, you had uh, in France, uh, Roseanne Cher, who walked all across France, to uh, uh, protest against, you know, uh, prostitution being legalized and which ended up leading to them adopting the Nordic model as well. And now you have people in every country who have been in prostitution who are not ashamed to speak out with their face, with their name. And so what do the people do who said, listen to sex workers? Do you think they actually care? Do you think they listen to those people? No, they're just like ignoring that because if you don't have the right opinion, which is prostitution is great, you're not worth listening to. And I think the same thing is happening now when it comes to de-trans people, because what we've heard all the time is that when I speak about this issue on gender identity, I'm told, well, you have to listen to trans people. You know, they're the authority on this. And how we've had like our first public detransitioners here in Sweden, like a couple of people who've come out and said, you know, I went through the whole treatment. Um, it was no good. Um, I was tricked into it. I maybe didn't wasn't informed about what it actually would the toll it would take on my body, for example, things like that. And do you think they're listened to? I mean, the same people who say listen to trans people are completely ignoring them. So, but I think next we're going to see different developments. We're going to see more and more new trans people coming out, but we're also going to see back to our previous discussion. We're going to see more and more people like Rachel Dolezal, for example, like we've, we've seen now this British influencer called Oli London, who's like now Korean 
And I think we're going to have more of that. I think we're going to have people who are trans age, transracial, like everything. And all communities are going to have to deal with this. You know, are you or can you decide who you are? You know, do you become or is there something at the bottom of all this which you cannot change? Well, it'll be interesting to see if governments allow this because the prospect of having to pay a 25-year-old for an elderly pension is daunting for governments to face, right? And certainly the Black American community wasn't very appreciative of Dolitzal taking the job from an African-American woman. So I'm not sure that it's going to be cut and paste across the board because those tests failed. Not only her test, I think there was someone up in your neck of the woods, a man who tried to be trans age, and that failed as well. Um, it, it might have been Denmark. He took the case to court and lost. Mm. But this is interesting because at the heart of all of this, there's there's so many reasons, but you're right that in your country, in much of the EU, people pay either nothing or very little for education compared to the US. But there's another factor that comes in. How are these programs being funded? And I'm sure, as you know from your work in the, the sex work in this industry, as it's called, but in prostitution and NGOs that work in prostitution around the world, there's a lot of funding happening by the Ford Foundation. I don't want to single out the Ford Foundation, but it's one of many of these NGOs that is advancing the notion that 16-year-olds should just go out and become a prostitute and they are advancing gender identity. Well, even the EU does that. Like when I wrote my book on prostitution, what I found was that the EU is paying, I mean, it's funneled through like, I mean, I'm sure they mean well, but I don't really know if they know where the money goes. Like it goes to HIV prevention. You know, where's the channel to organizations that work with prostitution? Now it sounds good. Like the most vulnerable, you know, AIDS is bad, right? But what do these groups do? Well, a lot of them, you know, are about distributing condoms to women in prostitution basically trafficked women. So they go around in Holland, for example, giving out condoms to women who are just starting prostitution. You know, I was talking to one of the employees of like the Mama Cash, for example, organization. Basically, they go around on these streets and they have a great relationship to the pimps and they distribute condoms. And once she told me, oh, sometimes you meet a girl who just, you know, has just had her first client. And I'm like, you know, yeah, but what if she tells you she doesn't want to be in this? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not our job. Our job is to make sure she's a good prostitute. You know, and the EU is paying money for women to become good prostitutes at the end of the day. But of course, it's not presented as that. You know, if the program was presented, nobody would give a dime. But it's like presented as HIV prevention, working with target groups, peer to peer. You know, peer to peer means like one prostitute is going to help the other to teach her how to basically receive clients. Yeah, well, I was dealing with an NGO in Germany that works in human trafficking. I kid you not, when I asked them about prostitution, as women are most frequently trafficked into the EU through Germany because of their lax laws, the woman said, but we're not allowed to talk about that. And I said, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. You don't recognize that women in prostitution in this country, I was living in Germany at the time, are largely trafficked. No, we're not, we're yeah. not allowed to consider that. And I just, I, I was on the phone with her and I, I paused for a long time because I, and then I challenged her and I said, are you saying that you can't because you might lose your job or your organization will lose funding? And she said, well, because prostitution is legal here, so we can't even consider it. You see what I mean? There we are back at trans women are women. Well, legal doesn't mean everything is good, you know? Yeah, I'm appalled at like the lack of, of, of distinction here, because sometimes, you know, it's like everybody knows that, yeah, like where do diamonds come from? You know, where does gold come from? You know, they're mines, right? These mines are legal. It doesn't mean to work there is is something that everybody dreams of doing. Everybody knows work is hard. And what do like unions do? Well, unions complain about the work. They say we want to work less. Right. And they bring out all the hardship that this work entails. Now, the so-called sex work unions, what do they do? Oh, prostitution is great. You know, there are no problems. We don't want anything. You know, we just want to work more, which tells you they're not really unions, because if they would be, they would be the first to bring out how bad things are. Right. I mean, I can't believe out of all jobs that exist in the world, prostitution is the only one that they have nothing bad to say of. Right. 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 Yes. At the same time as it's the only industry that has to kidnap workers. 
to survive. I mean, what other industry does that? Like even the worst jobs here in Europe, like even the factory jobs, the cleaning jobs, the worst restaurant jobs that are like, you know, with basically slave drivers as, as bosses, you know, even they don't have to go kidnap people and traffic them here. People are lining up to work there. You know, why is the sex industry the only industry that has to like pay to, you know, make somebody go to another country bring people over, pay them, you know, place to stay and take their passports away for them to work in it. Yeah. Yeah. And the narrative in these countries, of course, is, well, they're foreign workers. We have it so good here. They want to come here. They don't realize the reason why they're trafficked to another country is that they have even fewer rights in the new country than they would in their home country. That doesn't seem to cross anyone's mind, especially the neoliberal lefties in universities saying, I've been to these conferences, Ekis. Oh my, one woman was there and she was, you know, early 30s and saying how she's worked with all these sex workers and she was going on. And when I heard the ages of the quote unquote sex workers, I was appalled. And after I said, how can you call a 16 year old a sex worker? Our brains haven't even fully developed until around 27. So this is this is allowed and this is the problem back to the academic discourse is that it's allowed to proliferate there are if you put university professor and then in quote sex oh, a specialist in sex work there's hundreds of names that will come up there are academics making this their profession and i was doing work in kerala and karnataka in southern india many years ago on the trafficking of women and children and there were NGOs set up that were receiving money to sort of sidestep that issue. And so I said, what do you mean you're going to help the sex workers in this building? Well, because uh, they need our support. And I said, what, what does that support come to? Is it, are you helping them exit? No, we help, we bring them food. So basically NGOs that are getting six figures to quote unquote help sex workers are actually just keeping them in the job you see yeah so like if you weren't a prostitute they wouldn't give you food yeah well it comes down to that doesn't it and the same thing i saw the trans narrative coming through the same ngo in mysore where i was investigating they have these transgender prostitutes that they were supporting and i'm thinking wait my family is from northwest india and they know very well that these are men and they know very well that hijra in india have for many years existed and in recent history have had to survive through prostitution there are reasons for that but let's not make them into the victim because there's millions of women in india who are living in the very super poor category economically who are forced into sex work for feeding their children. So yeah. I find it phenomenal that in the last decade, trans, which is supposed to affect less than a percent of the population of uh, a comma zero percent of the population effectively. And the numbers are, are they zero three or virgula zero seven? But they have come to the surface that if I were a Martian from another or any, any being from another planet and reading our news every day, I'd think that transgender people were the 51% of the population and that women were the zero four or whatever. Isn't that insane that this lobby in 10 years has institutional support of like the Ford Foundation, of the HRC, of GLAD, yeah, but what does this tell you? You know, this tells you that it's not about trans people because if it really just was about 0.3%, you know, they're not enough to, you know, um, warrant like this massive change. So why would people care so much about a minority? You know, it doesn't make sense. So really it tells us that other interests are channeled through this question because it's the only way that you can destroy women's rights without appearing like a, a, a reactionary. So you appear like a progressive person when you dismantle women's sports saying that we're just going to include more people. It's just about inclusion, inclusion of who, where, you know, are we talking about inclusion of like women or former women in men's sports? No, we're talking about inclusion of men or former men in women's sports, which is presented now. I was reading today in the newspaper, like, oh, this is the first time a trans athlete is going to compete. Well, how do you know that? You know, how do you know that not so many of the women competing in the women's 
in women's sports have, have felt like they weren't women or how many men have not felt like they weren't men. Sports are not about how you feel. It's about what biological category you belong to. True. And isn't it phenomenal that people have now been outraged in recent weeks with this upcoming competition with Hubbard. And yeah. for months before, you've had many women, many organizations speaking out about women being raped in prisons by these men and no one cared. Yeah. It speaks a lot to the cultural misogyny. At the yeah, heart they don't care about women in prison anyway. So like, why would they start caring now? Right. And so we have this very strange landscape where the sporting issue and the children being transitioned tends to get the the heartstrings of people and sadly i'm not a pr person but people do react to certain stories more than others and that's the way that they're being piqued by this issue and eventually they get to understanding that there's a massive flow of money going into certain charities and those charities are telling immigrant women to <clears throat> if you're a cervix haver come and get a smear test now how many immigrant women who are not native english speakers will know what a cervix is i'm a, yeah. an american the first time i heard smear test i mean we use smear in new york to refer to a bagel with cream cheese so i was uh -huh. a bit confused do you know what i mean so you've got a very weird mixture of narratives because the trans lobby loves to throw out oh you're a racist you're you're a racist if you don't support trans women because they've used as I don't know why they story. Like that issue. I don't know why they always put every time they want to see, say cis woman they always put white in front of it like what well, do they, they mean all women are white like why means, are they always these it means they don't have an argument this happens on twitter all the time it means they can't defend their position and they deflect to they'll say well Monroe Bergdorf is a real woman and you're a racist if you can't see that simply because Monroe yeah. Bergdorf is not white, but he's also upper middle class. He comes from a wealthier class of Even people. Even if he wasn't, you know, it's not yeah. the point, you know. Yeah. yeah, true. But the idea is that class has been dismantled as a frontier for analyzing anything. So what it is now Nobody's is science saying, is like, trumped by fields. Yeah, it's not about that. It's about like, what is the definition of woman? And nowadays, woman has become this category that's supposed to be inclusive, whereas the male category is exclusive. So like you have bathrooms, you have changing rooms, you have prisons, you have sports, where basically only men are allowed to be. And anybody who is deviating from the sex or gender uh, of, of male is supposed to be in the women's category. So in the women's category, we have women, we have trans women, we have trans men, we have non-binary, we have all sorts of people are supposed to be in the woman category. So we're like a trash category now. We're like the leftovers. So back to la coeur, you know, this is what it's about. This is creating a kind of non-men category. So again, you're back to the one sex model. You have men and then you have non-men. So we're the non-men apparently. We're nothing in ourselves. Exactly. And when we become this sort of, leftover on the menu who's it's funny men you but we have this space culturally <laughs> very like daily she always used to play with words i love the way that she thinks yeah you yeah know, she, she was like instead of therapist she wrote like the rapist that's right that's right well in this way we have now lauren hubbard who this lobby has gathered around supported poor him excuse me but lauren hubbard is the son of the most wealthy citizen of New Zealand. Wow. This was the serial king of that area of the world. So let's not pretend poor Hubbard. No, what's poor anything is that he elbowed out other women from the competition. At a last minute, the woman he yeah. immediately elbowed out was let back in. I tried to find out. I called up everyone. I did. I called France to find out what happened with her inclusion. And they created a last minute special category that translates to we don't want the shit to hit the fan with us, you know, uh. and this is what's going on. People are not being honest within these sporting bodies. And the sports medicine people need to step up and start talking because obviously track and field, it's unlikely that a woman's going to get hurt, but there are so many contact sports where she will. Yeah, she's also going to lose. <laughs>